In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue our study of the book of Leviticus, um, starting with Leviticus chapter 5. Last week we studied chapters 3 and 4, um, which focused on two specific uh, sacrifices. Does anyone remember what sacrifices we learned about last, last week? The sin offering was one, not the trespass offering. We mentioned the trespass offering because we we're going to talk about it today. The peace offering. Yes, the peace offering. So what was the peace offering? Like, what was the purpose of the peace offering? To establish fellowship between man and God and man and people and neighbor? Or yes, peace, yes. Peace. <laughs> to establish peace. Right, good. Reconciliation. And between between the offerer and God and the people around them. And what was the unique characteristic about the peace offering? That what? Everybody gets to eat from it. So the person who comes to make an offering and the person who's offering eats, the priests eat, their family eats, other people also can eat. So it's like a, a, like a, a group um, offering for reconciliation um, between God and man. And then we mentioned the sin offering, okay? And what was generally the purpose of the sin offering? To be reconciled back to God after committing a sin or, or a trespass? Yes, or sin. A sin. Sin, right? So yeah. sin, so when someone commits a sin, they go and make a sin offering. But we said that the, the sin offering is um, specifically for sins that are unintentional and for general sinfulness, not necessarily for very specific sins. There are many sins that are going to be outlined in Leviticus. Um, where there's restitution that is to be paid. So like specific damages that are to be paid to a person who is sinned against. Those types of sins, this is um, not the sin offering is used, but the trespass offering, right? And we spoke about the difference between sin and trespass. Tra trespass or transgression is like to sin against a certain law, like to, to violate a specific law as opposed to sin in general, which is just anything that is contrary to the will of God is sin, whether or not there's a specific law given, whether you're aware of the law or not, but, but that's kind of generally the difference between sin and, and, and trespass, okay? Yes. That's the one where there was a group as well. The group of people can, can pay for their sin as well, right? The trespass? The tr it was it the trespass or the sin? The sin offering. The sin, the offering. sin offering, the one we spoke about last week, there is different, off like the, uh, the, the, sl the way that the offering was offered slightly changed depending on who was offering it. Whether it was the priest offering it on his behalf his own sin, whether it was the congregation as a whole, whether it was a, a ruler of the people, or whether it was a common person. Okay? And, um, and, and so today in chapter 5, it's actually going to continue speaking about the sin offering uh, and then and then we'll transition to talk about the trespass offering and again highlighting the difference between the sin offering and the trespass offering. Okay, any questions before we continue? Anything unclear so far? Okay. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. So here we're, we're still speaking about sin offering. We haven't gone to speak about trespass offering yet. So here, if, if, if a person um, hears something, is a witness to something, but he is not honest in speaking up about what he has seen, then this is the guilt that comes upon him. So for instance, if a person witnesses another person sinning, but denies it. Or a person witnesses another person sinning, but when they are called to speak, like in the, in the like when there's an accusation that is made and they know something and they refuse to speak, then that, that person also bears guilt, right? Or if a person is falsely accused of, of something and there is a witness that knows for a fact that this person is innocent, but they refuse to speak and they don't step up and speak, that person is guilty, okay? Um, or if a person uh, if a person knows that another person is innocent though they are accused by someone else but and stays quiet they are guilty or if a person refuses to offer testimony like if they're called to be a witness and they refuse to offer testimony at all even though they have information to offer that person is also guilty okay and he actually would be considered a partaker of the guilt of the accused person right so the witness that has information that could either condemn or clear 
another person when they are accused is called to speak. Okay. Um, origin, he says about this, he says, it is befitting of us to know that he who happens to catch a neighbor in the act hides the issue and does not tell the truth nor testify to it will bear the sin of the guilty whom he has covered up and on him will come his same punishment. This does not apply to him who shows compassion on his neighbor and admonishes him to exhort him to repentance, but applies to him who disregards his neighbor's salvation by covering up his evil. So this brings up an interesting question. Right, because we're always called to cover each other's sins. When you see someone committing a sin, you're not going to go in and say it. Right. So how does this apply here? If here it's saying essentially, if you see somebody do something wrong, then you have to speak. There's plenty of microphones, just <laughs> nobody wants to touch them. <laughs> Based off of the commentary, it sounds like you don't necessarily have to proclaim their sin in public, but you have to talk to them about it. Like, you can't just hide the fact that they did something wrong with them. But if they're accused of a sin, mm. and you're a witness, then you have to go proclaim it publicly. Because it's part of, like, a trial. So at this period of time in Israel, there was really no distinction between legal and religious because they were one and the same. So it's not like there was a separate court. This is the court, right? This is the court. So, so God being, so after there started to become a king in Israel with King Saul being the first king, they started to be like a government separate from God's commandments because man could create their own laws. Right. Like there was no prior to that. Man didn't create any laws. Every single law that was made was made by God. Right. And given to the people. And God was the judge. And he gave every single thing. It's like, OK, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this and so on and so on. Whereas whereas at this. So, so that's the stage that we're in. Whereas after that, it's kind of like God is saying, OK, you have a government system. You create your own laws. Right. Obviously, there's certain restrictions on what laws the, the laws have to be just. But. But you, you create your own law system, your own system of punishments, your own, you know. And that's essentially what we have today, right? Like, God did not say that in, you know, Harris County, that if somebody commits a misdemeanor, then you have to do such and such or pay such a fine. Like, that was not, God didn't say that, right? Like, the secular government said that. But God said to submit to the secular government, okay? So here we're at the, a, a phase where there's no distinction, really, between the government and the law of God. Yes. I think it's whatever leads to the salvation of the person. Th and that's that's the metric, right? So if if the person is is at a stage where he he's owed some kind of punishment f to restore him because sometimes what you need to restore someone is the punishment, then in that case it is our duty to go and speak up and say something. But if it if the person is kind of weak in his faith and he committed something out of either ignorance or just weakness and he knows that it's wrong, then it is what will lead to that s the salvation of that person in that case probably would be the covering. And in that case, what, we should, what we're supposed to do is the covering. Okay, good. So it's very much dependent on the situation, dependent on the attitude of the person, depending on the repentance of the person, dependent on what is the most beneficial thing for the person. And, and that's what Origen said here in this last sentence. He said, this does not apply. So this being the idea of you have to, um, you, you have to essentially like expose the sin, right? This does not apply to him who shows compassion on his neighbor and admonishes him to exhort him to repentance but applies to him who disregards his neighbor's salvation by covering up his evil. Now, see, notice in both those scenarios, there is a covering. But in one case, the covering is for what? Is to promote the evil, like essentially saying, I'm going to hide your evil so that nobody finds out and I'm going to protect you from being exposed. Whereas in the other case, I'm going to cover it. Why? Because you're already repenting and I already rebuked you for it. I already called you out for it. I'm, I'm not ignoring it. I'm not, I'm not like instigating it. I'm not helping promote it. I'm not making it easier for you to sin. But at the same time, I see that you are repenting, right? And so not, not, uh, not to announce it, okay? Now, again, in the Old Testament, 
Okay, this is maybe a, a New Testament understanding, right? The way that we see things in a spiritual way. And, and the Old Testament things were more cut and dry. Like, okay, if you see it, you see it. And this has to be said. But, but when we try to un understand it in a, in, a, in, a, in a New Testament perspective, from like this pr perspective of grace, this is the distinction, right? Between when I am to expose versus when I am to cover. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Okay, so this is the second category now that's being mentioned about, again, offering these sin offering for, right? Meaning some someone who is, is touching something that is unclean, either um, unintentionally, or without understanding that this was unlawful to be to be touched, okay, so um, he is to to he he's, he shall be guilty and he shall be guilty and unclean, okay. Um, there are other also other commands given to someone who would be touching something's unclean, like they would have to purify themselves and wash their clothes. Um, but here also they're going to be told that they have to offer a sin off uh, a sin uh, offering. This also extends to those people who are unintentionally touching a leper or someone with bodily discharges, this is all going to be mentioned later in Leviticus, or touching the corpse of a dead man. And then later on they realized it, right? But they did not go through the necessary purification process, which was prescribed for touching the unclean things. Then they also would commit sin and have to offer the sin offering. You can see also why, like, when Christ touched the leper, right, um, how much of a big deal it was, right? Because the, the, the law actually... Um, speaks explicitly about not touching the lepers, right? So, so, so we'll get to that. But, but that was one of the things that they would have to do the ceremonial washing, and then if they didn't, um, they would be considered unclean, and um, and they would have to offer the sin offering. So this would apply to so let's say you touch someone without knowing that they were a leper, right? And then later on you discovered it, but you didn't take action by purifying yourself. Okay. Yes. I still think, though, that there might have been an understanding given in the Old Testament that these rules are, like, the spirit of the rule that we apply in the New Testament also existed. Because I'm just thinking about um, St. Joseph, the carpenter, right? And how he covered when he thought that St. Mary was pregnant out of wedlock, right? And he, and he, he covered, right? He didn't he was going to expose between them by letting him go, letting her go. So he wasn't gonna stay quiet about it. He was gonna do something, but he wasn't going to go according to the law and have her stoned, which was his right, right? So there was still that understanding even in the Old Testament because Saint Joseph was Old Testament. So there are definitely exception exceptional cases, right, that we see, but the exceptional cases were very situational and not written in the law. So for instance, according to the law, this is the law. Like according to the law, the way the law was given, there was no carve out for, unless you think they're really a good guy, right? Unless you think that they're really repented from their heart, right? Like there was no, there was nothing like that. Actually, in all of the laws that God gave in the Old Testament, everything was very black and white. Actually, I mean, what, 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 what ended up leading to like the very legalistic view of the Pharisees was because they were trying to follow the law exactly without understanding the purpose of the law. But the reason that God gave the law this way is because the people didn't have a spirit of discernment. Like what you're talking about, like with, with Joseph, right, is discernment. Like he would look at the situation and he discerned what is the right thing to be done. Because the right thing to be done didn't change over history, right? Like God's perspective of what is right is the same. God's concept of mercy didn't change, right? But the way that it was applied to the people and the way that the people could discern what was con what was an appropriate response in different situations, that's the thing that changed over time. That's what's changed in the New Testament. Then he says, we have now the spirit of God to discern, right, how to judge a certain situation, right? As opposed to having just law after law after law after law, and, and now he says, no, you have the law of Christ. You have the, the, the law of the spirit. Judge it according to the Spirit. And the way that the Spirit judges is very situational, 
right? But when you're going to say this is the law given to everyone, it has to be written like this. And the same is true today. Like the same is true. Like the reason you have judges is because judges take the law that was written and they try to apply it to the specific case where there was a violation. And they try to say, was this violation, first of all, was it a violation? Second of all, what type of punishment is warranted by this violation? And they'll take in things into account as well. Was it intentional? Was there accentuating circumstances? Was the person under duress? Like w w all kinds of things in order to, c to decide, you know, like, like a Frida doesn't know the laws of the country, you know, that should be a reason she can get a ticket, right? Like something like that. So, so the, the idea is, is that the judge is necessary. The law is not sufficient by itself. Because any law that's given by itself cannot cover every situation. Like there's not every situation, cannot be covered by just having a bunch of rules. The judge has to come, interpret the law, figure out how the law applies to this case. So in this case, what we're reading is the law. How is God going to then take this? Like let's say someone violates this, okay? How is God going to judge? Well, God has his own judgment. He has his own way. When he saw King David eating of the showbread, he didn't say, David, the law says you can't eat of the showbread. No, he said, I understand. Like you would have starved if you hadn't eaten of it. And so you, you did the best that you could to fulfill the law. You didn't eat it out of a lack of reverence. You ate it out of a need to survive. So, so but, but could that have been written in the law? Could God have said, only the priest can eat the showbread unless you're starving? No, he couldn't, right? He couldn't put every everything. So, so, so that's why I, I just, I don't want to, like even though, yes, in every situation there could be, and there could also be the opposite. There could be also like the examples that God calls out, like the man who was stoned because he was carrying sticks on the Sabbath. Like that guy, he was just carrying sticks. You know, how many other times did people break the Sabbath and nothing happened to them? So countless, millions of times that people broke the Sabbath and nothing happened to them. But this guy, he was carrying sticks and, and God commanded that he be stoned because he wanted to make an example to show, look how important it is for us to follow the Sabbath. The same thing with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied and they said that they gave all of their possessions to the church when they really didn't. What happened to them? They fell dead. Were they the only people who have ever lied to the church? Well, there's plenty of people who have lied, right? How come they didn't die? Well, because again, God made an example of this person to say this is how important the law is. You must follow the law. If you don't follow the law, this is the consequence, okay? But not everybody gets the same uh, judgment, at least on earth, okay? So here we're fo trying to focus more on what is the law itself. But what Origen, the commentary that Origen gave, that's why I, I said it's more of a, a New Testament perspective because it requires discernment that in the Old Testament they didn't have. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness uh, with which a man may be defiled and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. So this is like this human uncleanness is any type of discharge that's coming from a person, uh, any kind of fluid coming from a person. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by oath and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. What do you find interesting about this? Yeah. What does that mean? You don't know. No. What is it? What is it? What is what is what is being condemned here? Thoughtlessly. Hmm? Thoughtlessly? Swearing, like making the oath itself. It's not the breaking the oath that's, that's being condemned. It's the making of the oath. So whether you make an oath to do good or to do evil, because again, God said, do not swear. Because to swear is an act of pride. So it's both an act of pride and an act of blasphemy. Okay, why? Because it's pride because when you swear, you're essentially saying there is absolutely nothing that can prevent me from fulfilling my oath. That's prideful. Actually, you don't even know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. It's like the, the parable when Christ is saying about the man who's this businessman, and he's saying, oh, tomorrow we're going to go here and there and buy and sell and make businesses and build barns and storehouses and all this stuff. And he said, you fool, you don't know that tomorrow, you know, today your life will be asked of you. 
you know what then will be all of like these plans that you have right it's any 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 anything that we swear we're essentially saying i am in such control of my life i'm in such a control in the future that no matter what happens no matter how severe it might be i will carry out my oath you know so th number one it's a kind of pride two it's blasphemy because the thing that we are swearing by because what is it that we swear by we swear by something important like when people say i swear to god what does it mean to swear to god it's saying like like if i were like like if i were to um violate my oath right like my the 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 the, the, the sincerity and the authenticity and the veracity of my oath is so high at the level that like like it could not even be broken like to the level of god himself like just as god would not break it so i will not break my oath right and that's why it was blasphemy right and that's why also christ told us let your yes be yes and your no be no he said don't make any oaths okay so here both the making the oath to do evil and making the oath to do good right you were guilty regardless of whether you carried it out or not just making the oath so so far we've had yes can you give an example of what an oath is because imagine like let's say at work i have to finish this project in six months and I say I'm going to finish it in six months. Like there, there are goals or deadlines to certain things that you have to do them. Is that an oath, or is an oath is I'll be there and I'll be at your party in two weeks? And is that an oath? No, an oath is saying like, uh, like, like you know, people use the word "I promise" or "I swear," meaning like I am, I am. F it's not just I am committed to do this; is that it will be done. Like it will be done. Like, like you, you know, back again. Like when, when, when in the New Testament, when he was saying, you should say God willing. Like, why is it that we say God willing all the time? Because it said so. We should. Um, but maybe we don't mean it in the right way. But God willing, meaning if God wills, then I will do this and that. If God wills, then I will come to your party in two weeks. If God wills, then I will finish this project and such and such. If I'm still alive, you know, if my, if, if I still am in health, if if I don't get fired first, if something, right? Like all these things that could potentially be obstacles for me to fulfill my oath. So I can say, as far as it depends on me, um, I'm planning to, with full commitment, to do X, Y, Z. But that's too wordy to say. So we just say, I will do it, right? But what do we really mean? When we say, I will do it, we mean, God willing, it will happen. Like God willing, God will allow me to do it, okay? What's funny is someone was telling me, I don't remember who it was, but they were telling me that in their work, because, you know, we, we're so used to saying God willing all the time. So in their, in their work, the, you know, and their boss would ask them to do something and then be like, yes, I'll do it God willing. And so the, <laughs> the boss interpreted that to be just like him trying to get out of it. Like, yeah, God willing. Like, what like so that way, if it doesn't get done, you blame it on God. Right. Um, so so th that's that's what it means. Yeah. Yes. Use the microphone. I mean, I'm not gonna. This I don't want to be blasphemous in this sense, but as as God says, let your yes your be be yes and your no no. Um, but couldn't we also fall and be prideful in our yes? Like yes, I'm gonna do. Like I told you, yes. Like I'm gonna do it. So believe me. But I yes like means yes it. is referring to my intention. Mm. It's my intention to do it, right? Like I'm. It's my intention to do it to the best of my ability. But it doesn't mean that. It is for sure going to happen, right? Because there's no way I can guarantee that, again, like I said, I might die tomorrow, so how am I going to guarantee? These things are related to like what we mean by certain words. Like one person can say yes and mean it one way. Another person can say yes and mean it a different way. But the idea is what do we mean by what we say? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. thank you. Right. Um, okay, so so far it's spoken about three scenarios where a person would offer the sin offering the first one is if they did not testify the truth correctly or they they falsely like they didn't respond when someone was falsely accused or they hid something that they knew when someone was accused that was the first the second is about touching something that was unclean and the third one was for not for for making um for making these um these vows okay if a person swears speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good okay um Whatever he, he's pronounced by an oath, he is unaware of it. Okay, so when he realizes it, that's when he would be guilty. Okay, 
And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess and that he, that he has sinned in that thing. So here we see confession. Right? There's confession happening. The person, once they realize the sin, they would confess the sin. And this confession would be also in front of the priest. Okay? They would actually confess in front of everyone, but they would also confess in front of the priest. Um, and, 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 and their confession is something that was necessary even before they would make the offering. Because the offering is not like, a, like an auto automatic, just because I made the offering, then that means now I'm forgiven. Right? It's something that is... Um, that that requires you to like feel remorse, like you feel remorse, and so you repent of your sin and you offer the offering. And we see different examples of people who are coming to confess their sins, right, um, in the Old Testament. So, for instance, when the people came to John the Baptist when he was baptizing, it says they came telling their deeds and confessing their sins. Okay, um, David confessed his sin before Nathan the prophet. Achan, the one who stole of the cursed items from the city of Jericho, okay? He confessed his sin, of course, after he was found out. So there was confession. And he shall bring his trespass offering. So now, now this is confusing, but he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. This is the same rules that we talked about last chapter. This is not a trespass offering. This is a sin offering, okay? The reason it says trespass offering is a translation issue, okay? I, here it's using the term trespass offering, but if you read it in the Septuagint, what it actually says is, and he shall bring for his transgressions against the Lord for his sin which he has sinned. Okay, so this translation is, should not say trespass offering because that makes it seem like we've already started to talk about the trespass offering, which is the last of the offerings we're going to talk about, but it's not. This is still sin offering. He's just trying to say, that you shall bring an offering for the sin you have committed against the Lord. You have trespassed against the Lord. But it's still the same sin offering, just as um, it says here, goat as a sin offering. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, or sin, which he has committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. So I believe this detail was not mentioned in the previous chapter. It says if, because remember it says if, if there were certain animals that you could bring. If, if you are not able, okay, to bring a lamb of the flock, okay, then you could bring the birds, okay? If you cannot afford the lamb, then you can bring two birds and you would actually make two offerings, okay? The sin offering, one of them is going to be called the sin offering, and the other one is going to be called burnt offering. But again, this burnt offering that is spoken about here is not the burnt offering. It's not the number one. It's not the burnt offering that we talked at the about at the beginning. That's a different offering. We're now talking about sin offering. The difference is that one of these animals, one of these birds, okay, is, um, is going to be completely burnt, okay? And that's the reason. When you had, remember, in this offering, part of the animal, like when you were dealing with like a, a lamb, part of the animal, okay, was supposed to be cut and, and, and the fat was to be removed and burnt on the altar. That was the rite of the sin offering. However, the birds, because they were very small, there was no way you could cut them up and get the fat. So instead of doing that and cutting it up, what you would do is you would take one entire bird and you would burn it right instead of burning just like the fatty parts so the two birds were used because it was difficult to separate the fat the, f the fat from the flesh okay so one of them was like the fat that is offered on the altar and the other one was given to the priest as a portion instead of the flesh of the animal so that's why they use two birds instead of one bird but when it says here that one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering, they're both sin offerings. They're part of one sin offering, but there's two separate sacrifices that are made. One of them is burnt on the altar, just as you would normally bur burn the fat of the animal, and the other one is given to the priests. Okay? Is that clear? Okay. And you shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first, and wring off its head from its neck, and shall not divide it completely. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. 
and you shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sinned shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. So even if you can't afford the two birds, you can come and offer the flour. This is not the grain offering. Remember the grain offering? You would come and bring flour and offer it as with the rules of the grain offering. This is not the grain offering. This is the sin offering, but because I can't afford to get the animal, so I will come and I will bring the flour. Notice the difference is that in the, in the grain offering, you would bring the flour and you could mix it with oil and frankincense. Here it says there is no oil and there's no frankincense. Okay? Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and burn, burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priest as a grain offering. So grain offering, again, not, not the official grain offering, but as an offering given to the priest of the grain, which is the flour, okay, in this case. We clear so far? Everything regarding the sin offering. Now we're going to start speaking about the trespass offering. Remember, the trespass offering is about very specific sins that were committed, um, many of them which required some like financial restitution for the sin that was committed. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation and shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. So he's going to present two different uh, uses of the trespass offering generally. Okay, One of them was for offering for sins which caused some kind of harm to the holy things. right? Misusing the holy things, using the holy things incorrectly, touching the holy things that shouldn't be touched. Anything regarding the sacramental items, like of the sanctuary, right? if a person unintentionally misuses the holy things, then there is a trespass offering that is to be offered. Okay, This could be slothfulness and offering com commitments toward the temple. So let's say you're supposed to pay of your tithe to the temple. You didn't do that. Um, you're supposed to offer the first fruit of all of your clean animals and the fruits and all of that. You didn't do that. Um, in, in the book of Malachi, when uh, God is rebuking the people and he's saying, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? in tithes and offerings, right? So God is seeing that the, the people are not paying their tithes and offering. They are sinning against God. This is um, to be paid, to, to, be, to, be, um, to, to use the trespass offering when a person has committed sin this way. The word unintentional means either that you forgot or you misunderstood. So it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like, okay, you know what? I know that I'm not supposed to touch this. I know I'm supposed to give this. I know, but I didn't do it intentionally out of rebellion. Right here, when it says if a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally, in regard to the holy things, okay, unintentionally. The other type of or use of the trespass offering is for the offering for sins that cause harm to other people, okay. So in, a, in for this type of offering, which we're going to speak about, in addition to offering of the animal as a sacrifice. Um, this required some kind of financial restitution or money to be paid in damages for what was done. And that's why here it's mentioning about the shekels. It says what? He shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation in shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. So this shekel that is being paid, this is the money that is being paid according to the sin that was committed. Okay, And every sin has a different um, valuation. That's why he's saying uh, the, with your valuation. The valuation according to the sin that was committed. The shekel was, do you know what the shekel is? Hmm? Yes, it's silver, but what is the actual, what is shekel? It, it's a unit of what? It's currency, but it's currency because it has weight. So the shekel is a unit of weight. Okay, so when you say shekels of silver, you're saying a certain weight of silver. Okay, a certain, certain weight of silver. Um, there was, the shekel of the sanctuary was considered the measure for the restitution, and it was a measure 
to weigh the precious things or might be some kind of silver or gold coin according to all the coins and other measurements that were calibrated. So it was like the gold standard, like the standard of measure that every other type of currency would be measured against and calibrated to. There was more than one kind of shekel. There was what the Jews considered to be the regular shekel, okay? Um, and then there was the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel of the sanctuary was considered to be double in value to the regular, sh regular shekel and was kept in the tabernacle of meeting um, to be like a calibrated model of the true shekel. You know, um, this is like nerdy, but for engineers, do you know like how we know how much a kilogram is? Because there is one actual kilogram, the true kilogram. Okay, which is kept like in a vacuum sealed chamber that's covered and, and like they, they use that to calibrate what the actual kilogram is and every other kilogram in the world is measured against that kilogram. Okay, so, so yes, you're looking at with strange eyes, right? Like, so there's actually like a physical object which weighs exactly one kilogram and is what we define one kilogram to be, right? And people will go and travel to this place and verify that they're that their standards are matching the true kilogram standards and it's a very nerdy thing. Um, so that's like this, the shekel of the sanctuary is like the shekel by which all other shekels are measured, okay? Um, there's also something that's called the shekel of the king um, and it was probably a specific measure that was always kept with the king as a unit of weight um, that was like unique to the king's measurements. I, I'm not sure exactly. Um, the Hebrews used the shekel of silver as money. Uh, and then after the captivity and the time of the Maccabees, it was mentioned in the New Testament as silver. So since the time of the Maccabees, instead of using the term shekel of silver, they could just say silver. So for instance, when they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver, it was 30 shekels of silver. Okay? So that's the shekel. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing. And he shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering and it shall be forgiven him. So each sin would require the animal sacrifice as well as financial damages equal to the damage that was done. So for instance, if I stole from you 100 shekels, okay, then I would be required to pay back what? Not 110, 120. Because <laughs> it's one-fifth extra. One-fifth, one one-fifth. Okay. So who would keep this extra 20% of damages? Who would keep the 20%? No. We would never do that. The person gets it. The person who you sinned against gets the extra. They're giving it to the priest because he's like the mediator. Okay, so the, you give it to the priest, and he's going to give it to the person who was sinned against. So if I stole 100 shekels, I would pay you back 120 shekels. Yes. But I thought this was about the holy things. What does another person have to do with the holy things, or am I missing something? Um, yes. So like I said, there's two... There's two things. So yes, in this case, the restitution is going to be a value that God has appointed for the holy thing that was harmed. Some, like a punishment. Like we said, when there's like a misdemeanor, you pay a certain damages. But the same is going to apply to whenever you're sinning against a person because the same trespass offering is going to be offered. Okay? So, in, so yeah, in that case, if you're sinning against like the holy things, then the sanctuary would keep the money. Like it would m money that would go to the sanctuary. If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. He uh, And he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he erred and did not know it. It shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Okay? Yes. When we pray that Trisegian, we say, uh, forgive us our iniquities, forgive us our sins, and forgive us our trespasses. 
why is he the bible here uses the word uh, iniquity uh right before the verse 18 so uh can you make wh- what is the distinction between iniquity sin and trespass i understand that you made the distinction between sin and trespass last time how about iniquity i have a document i can send you about that i don't have it all on the top of my head but l- remind me and i can send it to you okay but yeah there there is subtle difference between i the the again like the, there's a difference between sin and trespass or sin and transgression so those those words have subtle differences in meaning but remind me and i can get to you okay <coughs> um okay that was the f- so the chapter five we started speaking about the sin offering and then we concluded with the first part of the trespass offering which was when the trespass offering is related to harming of the holy things unintentionally okay now we're speak about other people what happens when you harm another person and the lord spoke to moses saying if a person sins and commits a trespass against the lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery or if he has extorted from his neighbor or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely any one of these things that uh, that a man may do in which he sins okay so what were these sins something was delivered for safekeeping so there was no banks right So if you wanted to um, save, like let's say you were going on a long journey and, you know, your tent is going to be, you know, ripe for thieves to come and steal from you. So you would take some of your valuable things, you would give it to somebody else that you trusted, and they would keep it for you. Okay? So let's say you gave it to me to keep for you, but then when you came back from your trip, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I never had anything, or I only have half of what you gave me, but I don't remember you ever giving me any more. In whatever way, I'm defrauding you somehow by not returning to you what is rightfully yours, okay? This is uh, one of the uses of the trespass offering, okay? Um, Or, he says what? Uh, Concerning a, a, a pledge. So, for instance, if I made a pledge to you that I broke, okay, that it would also be for the trespass offering, or robbery, okay, which we understand. Um, extortion is obtaining something by force, like blackmail, or like forcing somebody to do something. Um, or if something was in fact lost, but then he finds it, but he doesn't say anything and keeps it for himself. All these are examples of things that would be use using the trespass offering for restitution. Then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. Okay? So, so again, the first step is to correct what was done. Right? Return what was stolen, carry out the promise, and then also add 20% extra for damages. Okay, so interestingly, right, here now we see this is the first um, offering where you can actually correct the mistake, right? Every other offering we've made so far was because of, let's say, some sin, but there is no way to correct what was done. It was a sin against God. We committed a sin, and there isn't, like, some some specific action that necessarily can be undone, right, or corrected, whereas here... Because of the nature of these sins, this is something that can be corrected. So when, for instance, when Zacchaeus, um, you know, when Christ is in his house speaking to him, and he says, what, I will restore fourfold, right? Of course, that was above and beyond what he was supposed to restore. But there was that was a sign of repentance. It wasn't like, okay, I repent, and please accept me, but I'm not going to return any of the money that I've taken, right? Because at that point, it's like saying we've benefited from the sin that we've committed, and then we want salvation and we want forgiveness, but I'm not willing to give up anything, right? Yeah. No, this is like saying, like, if you if you gave me, uh, like, say, a certain amount of money to keep for you, but I lied about it and I didn't want to return it, then when I'm caught in the sin, I would return to you extra money. So I would return to you the original plus one-fifth of that money. Okay? This isn't speaking about multiple people. It's speaking about... E- like one person that I've defrauded, one person that I stole from, I'm going to pay him back with an extra. Yes. Um, so I remember us talking about how the burnt offering and maybe the grain offering were like voluntary, free will. At what point does it become that you have to do this? Like, 
This what? is you have to do this. Okay, and then who enforces that? Well, so what what happened is, right, like how how would this start? So again, go back to this example. You gave me money and I kept it for you. And then you came back from your trip and you asked for it back. I didn't give it to you back. And I claimed that there was no money or whatever it might be. So who are you going to go to? Where do you go? To the priest. Because we always get this stuff. So you go to the priest, and then he does his investigation. He goes and talks to the person. He gets the witnesses. He tries to mediate. He does all this stuff. And then if at the end, after all of that, the conclusion is that the person who was entrusted with the money lied and didn't actually keep, didn't, didn't act, did, had the money and lied about it, right? Then that way, now the, the priest is going to enforce that. Because if a person, if a person doesn't up comply with this, then they're essentially considered, like, if you want to say, excommunicated, Right? They could no longer have part of the assembly of God, right? There would be a punishment. So, or to the extent where that person could be stoned or killed, right? So there was all, there was severe consequence for if someone didn't want to comply with with this. And you shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. Okay? This is the... Uh, you got a question? the the term forgiven is mentioned quite a bit so w w they're forgiven of of what like so also in like the feast of like the day of atonement um they're forgiven but on what basis well what does it mean to be forgiven hmm, hmm? it's over so these people hmm. let's say they live their entire life offering all the sacrifices then they're forgiven, and then they're going to go to heaven. No, they're not. So they're not saved. Like they're not. So well, why would no they? But if they're forgiven, okay. Well, so Christ wasn't incarnate yet. Um, like there wasn't there wasn't the pathway of salvation yet. And so, is this like a like a a preface of like forgiveness of sins, kind of like our form of confession but they just didn't have the basis of like that bridge of salvation but eventually i mean they they went to hades everyone who passed away in the old testament went to hades and then because they had confessed their sins they were also going to attain the kingdom of heaven once the pathway of salvation was or since the, when the very, of salvation? very good okay. because who are the people who when christ went into hades who are the people who christ liberated the saints of the old testament right which are the ones who sought forgiveness uh, right Okay. So so these 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 who sought forgiveness were not forgiven in the sense that now you're completely wiped clean and in the sense that okay now you are you are you you are as white as snow you can enter the kingdom of God and you have full reconciliation with the father because reconciliation with the father hadn't happened yet. But once the reconciliation with the father had happened they were ripe and ready to go because they had done everything that was needed because that's how God judged if the people who who were the ones who were repenting and offering sacrifice doing everything those are the ones who then were brought into the kingdom of god awesome thank you yeah okay okay so this is the end of the trespass offering so again we said there's two reasons for the trespass offering when you sin unintentionally regarding the holy things or when you sin against another person okay um all the details, see, we're at the very beginning of Leviticus. So, so far, we have not talked about the actual law yet. Like, we haven't talked about everything that's illegal yet. We haven't talked about every detail of it, all the restitution that has to be paid for each one or any of that. All of that's coming, right? Right now, we are just saying, here are the offerings that we offer to God, right? And more detail is to come. Now, we are going to revisit, at the end, the rest of this chapter, is revisiting some little bit more details about the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the sin offering. So remember we covered the burnt offering, grain offering, and sin offering already. We're going to just revisit them a little bit. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the burnt offering. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Now the thing with interesting about this is the way he starts it. He says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his son saying. Okay, so what is this? Commandment to who? 
the priests. He's speaking here to the priests. He's essentially telling the priests the details of how they are to officiate the offering, right? Like the extra details. Kind of like you have what's written in the liturgy book that we all read, and then you have like the hidden notes that only the priests have, okay? Which is like the details of how it should be done. Okay, command Aaron and his son saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. He's not going to do, he's not going to go through the whole thing again, right? But the burnt offering shall be on the hearth or the hearth, hearth? I don't know how to pronounce that word. Hearth upon the altar all night until morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. So he's speaking now about what? How you have the fire on the altar. Where does the fire come from? How the priest shall be dressed when he is doing these, these different functions. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. So what does it say? The fire should never go out. Never. The fire of the burnt offering was constantly on all the time. Where did this fire come from? Okay, this fire actually came from God. Uh, we're going to read about it after uh, Aaron and his sons were anointed in chapter 9, Leviticus chapter 9. And, and so that fire actually started from God himself. Okay, and was perpetually kept burning throughout all ages for the Jews. Okay, this is why when people say, like, maybe one day when the, the, the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, how are they going to start offering sacrifice? Well, God has to send fire down because the fire has to come from him. And that fire doesn't exist anymore, right? In Leviticus 9.24, it says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So the fire started from God and continued by man. Yes, they would take the fire with them. Not only that, because that's an interesting point you make, okay? Um, the fire was maintained even in captivity when they went to captivity. In Second Maccabees chapter 1, it says, Therefore, establishing the purification of the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, we considered it necessary to signify this to you, so that you likewise may keep the day of shelters and the day of the fire that was given when Nehemiah offered sacrifice after the temple and the altar had been built. So he's saying, when Nehemiah offered a sacrifice, okay, what fire did he use? It was the same fire that had been burning from the beginning. For when our fathers were led into Persia, the, the, the exile, the priests who at that time were worshipers of God secretly took the fire from the altar and they kept it hidden in a valley where there was a deep and dry pit and they kept it safe in that place in such a way that the place would be unknown to all. But when many years had passed and it pleased God that Nehemiah should be sent by the king of Persia, he sent some of the posterity of those priests who had hidden to seek the fire. So Nehemiah, he comes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He's ready now to offer the sacrifice. He sends people to go and get the fire so they can offer the sacrifice from this valley that they had hidden in it. And just as they and, and, uh, and, and just as they told us, they did not find the fire, but only deep water. So they went to the place where the fire was. The fire was not there, but they just found water. Then he ordered them to draw it up and carry it to him. So they brought this water to him. And the priest... Uh, Nehemiah ordered the sacrifices which had been set out to be sprinkled with the same water both the wood and those that were placed on it so they, they took this water which had replaced the fire they took the water and they sprinkled the water on the wood okay and on the sacrifice and when this was done at the time came when the sun shined brightly which was be which before was in a cloud there was a kindled a great fire so much that all were filled with wonder Right. So over the years, we're talking about 70 years of captivity. But when they went into captivity, 
The priests took the fire with them and hid it. But somehow over time, God changed the form of this fire to be water, maybe because it was impossible for this fire to continue burning um, and not be tended to. And so when they went to get the fire, they found that it was water. They said, bring the water. They sprinkled the water on the sacrifice. When the sun shone upon it, it turned into fire. Yeah. So on that note, I mean, the, the priest who, who took it secretly and hid it in that, in that valley, um, were they not, like, tending to the fire previously? I know this is a very technical question. But, like, I mean, didn't they think it would go out? I mean, they were in con- captivity. Like, you know, I mean, like, why were they shocked? You know what I mean? Why were they shocked? I mean, like, oh, you know, like, they, if they tended to the fire and then they come back seven years later, like, why would it be burning? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe they weren't tending to it. Maybe it had been forgotten. It, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they weren't able to tend to it throughout. No, I'm saying prior to captivity, were they tending to it? Yes. Uh, prior to captivity, oh, it was okay. the fire of the burnt offering. So, but that, that's the point. Then if they weren't tending to it, then... No. Prior to captivity, the fire of the burnt offering was constantly being relit every day. So it was constantly perpetually, like it said, one of the duties of the priests every morning was to go and to burn, like put more wood to, to keep the fire of the burnt offering going. So dur- before the captivity, it wasn't the fire wasn't hidden. It was in the offer in the altar, but at the time of the exile, when Jerusalem was being conquered and the people were being taken into exile and the the temple was being destroyed, they took the fire. They took they lit from the fire, and they brought it with them into exile, the fire. Yeah, that and that's when they put it in the valley. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So during those seven years, they Se- seventy. Seventy. Sorry. Se- seventy. Seventy years of exile. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm saying no one was tending to it. Why were they surprised that it was out? That's what that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, well that's what uh, I'm saying is maybe they were tending uh, to it for some time and then they couldn't uh, anymore. I don't know. Forgive me. Sorry. It was, it was very technical. <laughs> <laughs> don't kill me. As far as I know, there's nothing like that. As far as I There's no fire now. So th- they think that the the the, the 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 reason that they can't offer sacrifices because there's no fire. Well, there's no temple, but there's no fire. Even if even if they were built the temple, they would have to get the fire from God. Watch the fire. No, well, the, well. So the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So so assuming that once they brought the fire back, that the fire continued to burn. And that even during the time of the Maccabees, yeah, I don't know, at the time of the Maccabees, um, I mean, this is, th- at the time of the Maccabees when Israel was being conquered by the Greeks and they defiled the temple. So I'm not sure actually if during the time of the Maccabees perhaps the fire had gone out or maybe they hid the fire again and they kept it and they relit it again. So at the time of Christ, they were offering sacrifice. So I'm assuming that the fire that was being used there at the time of Christ was fire that had come from God one way or the other. Um, but after Christ, when the temple was destroyed, at that point, everything would have been destroyed. And nobody that I know has claimed that that fire still exists today somewhere. Could, could it be the tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit, that is not a fire that is perpetual? That's a way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good meditation now. <laughs> Well, so that's a that's that's a viewpoint. A viewpoint is that they're going to try to build a temple, or they will build a temple. Well, so the the, pe- the people who the people who speak about the building of the temple, they point to the book of Ezekiel. But the book of Ezekiel can be interpreted spiritually and not physically. So if you interpret the book of Ezekiel spiritually, then there it's not necessarily the case. I mean, it's not like an uh, an official church stance that they're going to rebuild the temple. The people that say they're going to rebuild the temple, they're going to ask God to bring the fire. The fire isn't going to come, and then they're going to believe that J- Jesus was the Messiah all along, and they're all going to become Christians. Like that's a view, but that's not a 
can't, I can't say about that view that that's like universally accepted as being that's, that's the view or an official stance of the church. Some people have that view. Other people don't have that view. But, but the point with the fire, right, which is what we're talking about, um, is that the fire had to keep burning. All right. This is the law. Okay, so <laughs> that was <the laughs> that was revisiting the burnt offering. Now we're going to revisit the grain offering. Okay, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering, with its oil and all the frankincense uh, which is on the grain offering, and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat it with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, they shall eat it. So it goes into a little bit more detail on the portion of the grain offering that is being consumed by the priest. Okay, how are they going to eat it? They will eat it with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. That's, that information was not uh, given before. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. Okay, so giving a little bit more detail. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day which, uh, on the day when he is anointed, one tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at evening. So he is now saying that on the day when a priest is anointed to be priest, okay, the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is anointed, okay, saying. Uh, he will offer one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering. As a daily grain offering. So half of it in the morning and half at night. So this is saying that the priest would make a grain offering for himself in the morning and in the evening every single day. According to Josephus, the historian, he said that the regular priest would only offer it once um, on the date of their anointment, but the high priest would offer it every day. So we're not sure. Um, maybe that was the way that it was applied. Um, but here it's speaking about this necessity. Okay, and then finally, uh, revisiting again the sin offering. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. Uh, the, oh sorry, this is, this is the last part of the grain offering. Um, when it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The big pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The priest from among his sons who was anointed in his place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned for every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So one interesting thing is whenever the priest is the one making the grain offering, okay, there isn't any kept. Because, I mean, when, whenever a, a regular person is making the grain offering, part of it is kept to be eaten by the priest. Here, when the priest is the one making the offering, the whole thing is burned. Okay. Now, this is speaking about the sin offering. Also, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, and the court of the tabernacle of meeting. Okay? This is a distinction here between... When the priest, is, remember, there's four categories of people that could offer the sin offering. The, high, the, the priest, the congregation as a whole, a leader of the people, and a common person. So when the priest is the one actually making an offering for himself, okay, he shall eat of this offering and not burn it completely. But when the offering is made um, for the sake of another person, the, off the, the entire offering um, is burnt outside the camp. Okay, outside the camp. Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy, and when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash, on, wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place, but the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be, shall be broken. Okay, so he's speaking about the details um, of how you are going to uh, boil this animal. Okay, it says, but the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, 
But if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. So if you used an earthen vessel, you're going to break it and never use it again. If you use a bronze pot, you'll clean it very well after. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy, but no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It, uh, it shall be burned by fire. So again, when the sin offering is offered for the sake of a priest or the congregation as a whole, okay, in this case, the entire animal is burnt and none of it is eaten by the priests. Okay? And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any final questions? Yes. One of the sin offerings was to give fine flour, but I thought that there has to be blood in the sacrifice for it to be forgiven. So how could you give flour there is if there's no blood? Yeah, so that that was only done for the sake of the people who were very poor and they couldn't they couldn't have any kind of animal. But it's a good point because like it shows that like God is merciful to those who are not able to offer the thing that he's asking for. Going back to the idea, like there can be exceptional situations, Annie, that but you're right. Like there is supposed to be the shedding of blood for, for there to be remission of sin. But in that specific case there was no uh, shedding of blood. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. We can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you for every good thing and every blessing that you give us. We ask you, O Lord, for your protection, for your mercy, and your goodness. We ask, O God, that you allow us to offer you sacrifice from our heart in whatever way that is pleasing to you is a sweet aroma to you, that even though we do not offer animal sacrifices, but we know, O Lord, that, that what pleases you is a good and clean and pure heart. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy upon us when we sin against you. Uh, we ask you, O Lord, to forgive us our sins and to always grant us your mercy. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit. <laughs>